This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Inglis, number one in its field. Johnny Letts had a spectacular career as a jockey and retired in 1988 with 2,300 winners on his CV, two Melbourne Cups and many other major races. He went out with a winner at his very last ride and felt well satisfied with what he'd achieved in a 30-year career in the saddle. But little did he realise that even greater fame lay ahead through the power of television and the magic of the Melbourne Cup. Four years after his riding career finished, John Letts began a 21-year association with two networks, 10 and 7, conducting post-race interviews with every winning jockey over the four days of the Melbourne Cup Carnival. He and his professional little quarter horse, Banjo, became almost as well-known as the Cup winner and its rider. Ill health forced John out of that job in 2013 and he's taking it easy in Adelaide these days, although taking it easy to John Letts is a hell of a lot different to taking it easy for most of the rest of us. John's online to talk to us on the podcast. Great to catch up, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, John. I'm really good at the moment. Things are, things are firing on all fours. So as we speak, you're, uh, you're managing your health issues and you're in pretty good shape. I'm in real good shape, John. Uh, worry there for a while, for a couple of a uh, couple of years, there was a few worries for me, but um, got over that. All right, that uh, that's all behind me now, and uh, and it feels just like um, a resurgence. Mm, that's exactly what it is. I know yes. uh, you and Greg Miles were ambassadors. Uh, carting the Melbourne Cup all over South Australia recently, and Miles, he told me you haven't slowed down one bit. No, no, I haven't, John. I, I actually, I actually, um, I, I prefer to be back riding, really, because I'm doing more now than what I was doing <laughs> when I was, I was riding. I just don't seem to get any time. But, um, but the, the stuff that I do, John, I do for good causes. I don't, you know, I don't waste time. I don't no, waste time. No. John, let's go back to those wonderful days when the Melbourne Cup was being run. You were working for Channel Ten or Channel Seven. Where would you and Banjo? Position yourselves while the race was in progress. Well, John, we had a we had a favourite spot, Banjo and I. We 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 ran at sixteen hundred at Flemington. Mm. Uh, we ran at the twelve hundred at Mooney Valley. Uh, we were at about fourteen hundred at Caulfield mm. and Sandown. We were just out of the straight because there was a bit of a run on after. Um, and give them time to pull up. But yeah. we had our favourite spots. Banjo always knew where to go because he was... Um, I, I really feel, John, and I've, I've said to a lot of people, you know, I said, if, if Banjo could have been able to speak, I said, I'd have been out of a job because he was so good. <laughs> he was so good. He but really he couldn't talk. He knew his The only thing he couldn't do was talk. Yeah. So he had to have me. Yeah. <laughs> well, John, you'd head straight for the winner as the Melbourne Cup field was pulling up. And you got to witness firsthand those first adrenaline charge moments when a jockey realises he's won the cup. Who was the most emotional of the 21 jockeys you interviewed after Melbourne Cups? John, there was, there was, there was some... I've got three or four in a category of that category. Damien, of course, we will always remember because of his brother Jason, you know, being fatally injured that week. Mm. 
that was very emotional for me because I did write against Damien's father, Ray, and I knew him very well. And unfortunately, Ray was uh, killed in a, a race accident. Um, but that was very emotional for me. Um, the other one was when Blake Shin won it because, as you know, Blake's father, Gerald, was a jockey and he passed on before he, he saw his son win a Melbourne Cup. Uh, Kieran McAvoy, because Kieran's our own, uh, our own locally bred boy here from Streaky Bay, and we're very, very proud of him. And he, him winning it when he was 20 years of age, I was at the races with his grandfather, and I was a great friend of his grandfather. And, but I, I rode against his dad, Phil, and I rode against Tony and Darren and all of them. And um, it was funny, you know, John, because... Oh, Billy Holland was his grandfather, and he just loved young Karen. He, they, they were just they were just bonded, and I, I I was at the races. So I was coming in on banjo, and Karen had won the cup. And they were going to present the trophy uh, out in the mounting yard, and, and Bill was standing trying to climb over the fence, and the security were pushing him back. <laughs> and 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 I can thank Robbie Lang for this because I, I, as I was coming in on banjo, I seen him pushing Bill back, and I thought. He, he, he's come to Melbourne to see his grandson ride. Like, Brew wasn't given a good chance in the race, really. And and, and he's going to miss it. I, I want him to have it. And Robbie was walking past, and I said to Robbie, where are you going? He said, I'm going home. I said, can I have your pass to get in the mountain yard? He said, yeah, sure. So I went over the fence and gave it to Bill. Mm. I said, now go around and come in the gate. So he did. So he, he, he sent his grandson win the Melbourne Cup. You know, mm. that was very, very special to me, mm. uh, being very close friends to the family. Um, Glenn Boss was another one the third time John when he won on Maccabi Diva um, I was waiting around at the 1400 and, and Bossy came right around to the 1400 and he, he had his arm, re- arm around her neck and he, he, he was just emotionally drained he was so emotionally drained I mean he'd done it before mm. but it was nothing like this this was, this was history this was something that we might never see again and, and, and it's, I can't get emotional because, as you know, and you, you've done a lot of interviews, you can't get emotional with the person because mm. it just ruins the whole thing, doesn't it? Mm, absolutely. You know, yeah. John, if you had to pick one race, one jockey, one ride where they overcame unbelievable pressure, that's the one for me. Glenn Boss must have ice water in his veins. That yeah. race was going to a worldwide television audience. As you said, that mayor had just created a piece of history that may never be duplicated, and yet his ride in that race, John, was as cold and as patient and as composed as any ride of his career. John, I'll tell you something about Glenn when I spoke to him, and I suppose you could, you could say that category would be would beat by, uh, Damien by, say, half a percentage. That's, mm. that's all in, in the emotion stakes. Um, but I can tell you something about Glenn. He, he, he said to me, go back and have a look at the races that she won the three Melbourne Cups. Mm. He said, and have a look at the position I was in every time. He said, I was just about in the same position every time. Mm. Have you ever thought about going back, John, and having a look? Mm. Well, I've seen, I've seen all three, and I agree. She, she was certainly not on the pace in any of them, was she? No, he said she, there was like he said there was it was like someone had planned a spot for me, mm. and I was going to get that spot in those three Melbourne Cups. He said, and I got that spot every time. He said, and it just everything worked out. It was like a rerun, and uh, I went back and looked over. And thought, wow, Bossy, you know you were spot on, boy. Mm. 
John, your toughest interview post-Melbourne Cup was in 2006 when the Japanese horse Delta Blues got there in a photo finish, ridden by my good friend Yasunari Iwata. <laughs> well, you know what? I should have had you doing the interview because you knew his name. <laughs> he, he couldn't speak one solitary word of English. <laughs> he, he, he couldn't, John. And, you know, it was, it was, it was a... Uh, and, and you know yourself, when, when you're doing interviews, I, I never interviewed, we used to do uh, 37 interviews a week uh, mm. in that week, yeah. and I would never, I would never ever um, get prepared for one, you know, I would never mm. ever rehearse it, because, you know, in racing, it can certainly turn around very quickly, the best of them can get beat, and if, if you, set your, you set your sights on your interview on interviewing, say, well, look, Octagon was going to win, it's going to be easy, I'll just talk to Darren Beedman and say, you know, this and that. But sometimes it doesn't work that way no. and something might get up. So all of a sudden everything is put put out of order. Uh, so I never, ever, never, ever um, rehearsed or, or, or thought of the winner before the race. I just did it, you know, cold, the, more or less ad-lib. Yeah, ad-lib, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just did that a little bit. But, that, but that, that race, John, leading into that, you know, a couple of weeks before there was Delta Blues and Pop Rock were in the Caulfield Cup and Nashua Willow was riding Delta Blues mm. and, 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 and Damien was riding, Damien Oliver was riding Pop Rock. And, you know, and I thought, oh, a couple of good runs, you know, they got a chance in the Melbourne Cup. Japan's got a chance in the Melbourne Cup. Uh, but I went through all the jockeys and I just, I, I just went, I thought, oh, yes, um, uh, Frankie Dettori speaks English, uh, Jared Mosse, you know, but all of mm. the other guys, you know, all speak. And I thought, you know, uh, Damien, he's, well, Damien's done the interviews before. Uh, Nash is writing uh, Delta Blues. I thought, you know, there's, there's no problem with any language barrier. I uh, didn't know the winner, didn't have any idea of the winner. But I, a week before, they put Yasunari Iwata on on Delta Blues, and I thought, no, this this couldn't possibly happen. Uh, this horse couldn't possibly win with the Japanese rider on him mm. um, because, y- you know, he, the Japanese rider hadn't ridden much. Well, I think he only had one or two rides against Australian jockeys before mm. before that race, um, and I thought, no, he couldn't win. So I, I, sp- <coughs> excuse me, I spoke to the boys in the studio at Channel 7, and Greg was calling the races at the time, Greg Miles, and... I was talking to Bruce McAvaney up there because I do have contact on the pony because I've, I've got an earplug mm. and, and, uh, and a microphone. I said to Bruce, I said, Bruce, just in case, <clears throat> I said, um, they put uh, Iwata on, on, on Delta Blues, just in case it wins, I said, um, does anyone know any Japanese? <laughs> and Bruce said, well, I don't. <laughs> and there's always one in the outside broadcast man that knows. You know, there's always someone there. Mm. Uh, and there's a guy in the background said, I do, let's see. I said, yeah, what, are, what, what do you know? He said, sayonara and uh, uh, konnichiwa. Yeah. And I said, what does that mean? He said, that says hello and goodbye. <laughs> I said, what order? He said, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm on, the, I'm on the pony going to the barrier while this is happening. Yeah. And, and I thought, sayonara, konnichiwa. I don't know what order, but he, he can't win anyway, so mm. why should I worry? Mm. Anyway, Greg knew. Greg knew that I never knew any English, uh, any any Japanese, and and you know the, the race went something like from about the hundred metres because I can hear the race but I can't see it, mm. and I'm around the back at the mile, and then the race went something like he said, the Japan's fighting out the Melbourne Cup. He said Delta Blues is in front. He said Pop Rock's gone up to join him. He said Delta Blues is ahead in front. Pop Rock's joined him. Ollie's gone for the whip, 
And I thought, please, Ollie, hit him an extra one, <laughs> an extra one. Yeah. Anyway, they went over the line and Greg said, Japan's won the Melbourne Cup. And I said, please, Greg, in my mind, I said, please, Greg, say that Pop Rocks got up. Mm. And he said, Delta Blues has hung on. And I thought, yeah. oh, no. Oh, and so around the corner comes uh, Iwata. Yep. And I canter over to him on banjo and out to point banjo at the horse and he knows where to go. And he tore over to the horse and... I pointed the microphone at him and I said, winner. He said, winner. And I said, uh, happy? He said, happy. And then he took off. <laughs> and that was it. So I taught him two words of English and he said nothing to me. <laughs> yeah. But it was, uh, that was the one, John, and you know yourself, uh, in an industry where mistakes are picked up easy. And I always say about the racing industry, um, mistakes are picked up easy Rumours go around the race course faster than the horses sometimes. Don't they? And, yeah. and it's true, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, Bill Collins, the late and great Bill Collins, you know, uh, when, he, when, he, when he said at Mooney Valley, Kingston Town cannot win, mm. and he won. Yeah. Uh, Greg Miles, I loved his call when he called. He said, a champion becomes a legend mm. with, with uh, um, Maccabi Diva. Mm. And then, of course, and then I thought, now what's mine? And, you know, I keep getting reminded, and this is it, the Japanese interview. <laughs> so the three of us have got, well, the three of us have got something to go to the grave with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John, stories about that wonderful little stock horse banjo are legend. Did he ever yes. do one thing wrong in 21 Never, years? ever, John. Did, did he ever pig root? No, never. <laughs> never, ever pig root. But it was a funny thing, John, because I had, I was working for, the, the uh, Melbourne Cup tour at a time, and and Pado Johnny Patterson owned him, mm. and his name was uh, 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 Trawathic Impulse. Yeah. Now that is a stock horse registration, and he was a stock horse. Yeah. Now he put he, he put Greg Hall on him one day, and he wouldn't go, and he just stood there and reared up, and then he put uh, Claire Bird on him, and he bolted, with, I think, with Claire. Mm. Uh, Peter Hutchison rode him, and he and he wouldn't, uh, and he took off with him and bolted. Mm. Uh, but John, there was a secret to him. It was he knew the job. Don't try and make him do anything different. And you know the Melbourne Cup, and I don't know if you noticed ever before the Melbourne Cup, they would always go out a long time before the race. Now, actually, that was a part of Banjo's fault because when they blew the blew, blew the uh, the, uh, the the trumpet, you know the the, the post call. The post, the post call, call to yeah. go out onto the track. Mm. I had the guys at the gate at Flemington lined up to open the gates because I knew Pado used him when I wasn't there, and Pado would always be the lead. He, he was he was the master. He was our master. He was the head the head clerk of the course, and Pado would always go out first on bands when I wasn't there, mm. and he'd work the meeting say on the Wednesdays or whatever. But Banjo would always take the number one horse out. Mm. So Banjo thought, well, I don't care if it's a Melbourne Cup or not. I'm still going out first. But it wasn't his job. He was only the interviewer this yeah, right. So anyway, up comes the post call. And, of course, do, 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 and then the blokes would open the gate. Bands would lift his head up from eating the grass in the mountain yard. Mm. And he'd head for the gate. Just walk over. And then we'd get into the, into the, into the uh, you know, the, the, uh, down the roses, where we go down the roses, yeah. the, uh, the, the path to glory. And... Mm. and He'd can around down there, and he'd go out on the track at a full canter, John, at the end. You know how it spears mm. to the left? Mm. He would go out that gate at a full canter, and as soon as he got out there, 
all the guys, all the workmen, all the groundsmen would shut the gates and stop people going across the track because the, they thought the film was coming out. Mm. But it wasn't. It was only banjo. Yeah. And that, that, that film went out on the Melbourne Cup track sometimes 10 minutes before they should have. Yeah. Because and they blew the, they blew the, the post, you know, mm. and, uh, and he would think, oh, well, I'm out. I'm first out. Out I go. So and they he, closed, closed it all off. So he did do something wrong in that 21 years. <laughs> but it wasn't yeah, but, too you know, serious. <laughs> John, you know, it's, it was great because people loved him. And, you know, Peter Donegan and Francesca Kamani and, and Bruce McAvaney, when we got to Melbourne every year and, and we did the Cox Plate, of course, and Caulfield and all of those meetings, mm. but they'd all have apples. Channel 7 always had a bag of apples for him. Mm. Um, the curator, he wasn't the most fav- favoured horse with the curator, with mm. Mick Goody, because when when he, uh, when he we got to the races, you know how the roses all bloom on, on the day? Yeah. Uh, on the Melbourne Cup week. Well, what he would do, there was there was different petitions in front of his stall, different parts, and each each meeting he would eat the roses off of them. So the first day he would eat he would eat about five meters of roses. Second day he'd eat five meters uh, of roses, yeah. and then on the third day, which was the uh, uh, ladies' day, he'd eat the roses, and then on the last day, when there was only one lot left, he'd clean them up. <laughs> so he cleaned up the whole lot, and the curio, he, he said, I'll catch, Mick said to me one day, I'll catch that pony of yours one day. I said, you want to be quick? I said, I've known him 20 years, and I can't catch him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> John, he, he was, as I said, the stories are legend about him. Sadly, he's gone to the big corral in the sky. Yeah, John, that was one of my saddest days in my life, and, you know, um, he was he, he was buried as Banjo Patterson, um, as I told you, his name was Trewarrick Impulse, but he was owned by Johnny Patterson, and I could never pronounce his name. And I said to Pato, I said, Pato, I'm going to change this horse's name. I said, people ask me, what's his name? And I say, Trewarrick Impulse. And then they'd say, how do you spell it? Hmm. And I'd say, well, how would I know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's right. And, and, I, and I said to Pato, why don't we just call him Banjo? Hmm. He said, well, call him Banjo, call him what you like. He said, he's yours. Mm. And like, he more or less give me Banjo. Mm. He said, he's your horse. He said, and, and he said, after things that have happened with other, right, he said, no one to ever, that horse will never, ever go onto the track again after those few incidents they had with other riders. He'd mm. never go on the track again with any other rider. And he never. For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most yearlings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. Johnny, let's, let's go right back in your life. You probably wouldn't have become an apprentice jockey had it not been for a school teacher called Mr. Manning. That's right. That true. Yeah. yeah well, John, I, I, I was, I was, uh, I wasn't real good at school. I was pretty ordinary at school, and and, and I finished up. I went to seven schools, and and I just kept running away. Um, <laughs> and I, no, I didn't. Uh, I went to. I started in a, in an area called Brompton, which is a pretty ordinary area over here. In Adelaide, and I started at Brompton Infant School, and then I went to the Brompton Primary School, and then I upgraded to a higher slum area called uh, Bowden, and um, I went to the Good Shepherd, and then 
they found out that I wasn't a Catholic, so after a month I had they got me out of there. And then I, I went along, I headed down to Port Adelaide Way where my parents were, and I did Alberton, Seton, uh, Hendon, Finden, and then I went to uh, Port Adelaide, and then I finished up at Lefevre Tech. And, John, you know, sometimes sometimes I wonder, you know, if, if any of the other teachers had said to me to become a jockey, I mightn't have taken any notice. But this teacher said to me one day, we were in school, and he said, when do you turn 14? And, you know, years ago how we used to uh, go to school and we get our intermediate when we were 14, and then we could leave. And I said, oh, well, Mr. Manning, I said, I'm 14 to July 28. And uh, he said, well, he said, I think I'd be looking for a job if I was you. And I said, why? He said, well, the exams are in September. And I thought, oh, you know. I said, but Mr. Manning, I see my report card every time you bring it in three or four times a year. I said, in all my subjects, I have an F. And he said, yes. I said, that means fair, doesn't it? He said, no, it doesn't. So he said, I'd be looking for a job. <clears throat> so he said, why don't you become a jockey? <clears throat> Excuse me. And John, you know, sometimes, and I, I talk at schools and I talk to kids, and I go around and I tell the kids and they ask you how you became a jockey. I said, that teacher seen something in me that I didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he said, and I said, well, Mr. Manning, why, should, why do you think I should become a teacher? He said, well, you know the student that sits alongside you? I said, yes. I said, he's the smartest kid in the class. I said, he always goes top. And he said, well, he said, I did, did mark your exams over the weekend. He said, and in those days, John, we used to sit at a desk and we'd have a briefcase between us mm. and we'd do our desk, you know, just at the same desk, but there was a briefcase between us. And he said, one question that I'd ask this brilliant student was, in what year did, did they discover, or Captain Cook discover Australia? Mm. And he'd written down, I don't know. And he said, and your answer was, uh, I don't know either. <laughs> so... so he thought that that was my time to leave. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. He was yeah, dead so, right. <laughs> yeah, so he said, you've got the perfect credentials to become, a, to become a jockey. I said, well, and I'd never ever thought of it, John. You know, I'd never been near yeah. a horse at 13, and I, I wasn't interested. And, and he said, I said, what's the perfect credentials, Mr. Manning? He said, well, you're not real big and you're not real smart. <laughs> and, and I said, I said well, is that what you have to be to be a jockey? He said, it helps. <laughs> so I decided... You know, then, John, that day that I would decide, you know, to become a, a jockey. Uh, my mother wanted me to work in a bank, and, and, and mum said, you know, I'd, I'd like you to, I come home and told her, she said, oh, I'd like you to get a bank job. And I, I thought, well, where am I going to get a balaclava and a gun that I can carry? <laughs> you know, anyway, I went in, and I got, and, you know, honestly, John, this was some things in your life that are meant to be, because... I went up to the parklands in North Adelaide and there was a horse standing by the fence, no saddle or bridle, and I didn't understand horses. And I just climbed up on the fence and I actually sat on this horse's back. And the moment I sat on that horse's back, yeah. I had a feeling this is where I should be. Mm. You know, I had a feeling and there was a friend of mine and we were only, you know, 13, 14 years of age, and, and he gave this horse a slap on the rump. And this horse just trotted around in a big circle and came back mm. to the fence. And I said to my mate when I said, I said, Raymond, I said, you know, I said, did you see me tear around the paddock? He said, you wasn't going very fast. I said, I thought I was flying. Mm. 
Mm. And anyway, I found out that mare, she foaled about a fortnight later, but she, <laughs> she wasn't going fast. But I tell you what, John, uh, it made up my mind. It, it was, made up my mind. It was a defining moment. It was. It was, John. And, and mm. after that, and the jockey says, there's some wonderful jockeys out there. And, and if you ask them how, how long they spend with their feet on the ground mm. after they become an apprentice jockey or a jockey, mm. They don't spend a lot of time walking because they've got barrier trials, they've got races, they've got that, uh, track work. And, you know, we, we spend a lot of time on a horse's back, don't we? Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it was something that and, – and I found that was just the, the moment that I was tapped on the shoulder and said, become a jockey. Well, acting on Mr Manning's recommendation, you became indentured to a Port Adelaide trainer called Jack Canavan. That's right, yes. had an enormous influence on your early life. And apart from that pregnant mare, you had never ridden a horse when you went to Jack Canavan's. No, never, never ridden. Uh, John, I was very lucky uh, because uh, he, he, he had, had four daughters and a son and I was treated as one of the family. Mm. And I lived in the house and he taught me. He didn't only teach me, John, about riding. He taught me everything about horses. Mm. Everything that he, he knew, he, he tried to, his son and myself are the same age, and he taught us how to, to give them, remember the old cupus ball when you put your hand down their throat, mm. when you got the gag to hold their mouth open, and yep. things like that, and you know, to, to trim their feet, and you know, to, to, to do things that, you know, most kids nowadays, they don't learn those things. No. They don't learn, they, they, they learn, they just, they're, they're bred to ride now, they're bred to ride. John, there's not a jockey alive who doesn't remember the occasion of his or her first win. And your magic moment came at a little place in South Australia called Snowtown. The yes. horse's name was Port Walk, and the second horse was ridden by your idol. Yes, and that was, John, that was the, the, the biggest day in, in, in my life. And, and, and I, I went to, leading up to that, I was only four stone five, John, at the time, <laughs> and uh, and I went to the stewards to get my licence, and they said I was too small, and that I, I would ride in the country for a year, and I wasn't allowed to carry a whip, uh, and but I was allowed to wear spurs, but I wasn't allowed to carry a whip, and I had to ride in the country, and I asked a question, I said, well, uh, why, why aren't I allowed to carry a whip? And they said, well... You've never ever ever used a whip on a horse, and you might get excited in a race and pull the whip. and And if you're in front at your weight, you pull the whip on a horse, you'll get blown on the horse behind you. And I, I couldn't argue with that. You know, I was four stone five, mm. and I thought he said the wind will catch you and blow you back. And I said, well, I'll have to ride without a whip. So I, I, that the morning of the race, John, you know, you're all excited and. You know, you got your race bag, and, and, and I packed my bag, I think, five times the night before, and, you know, just going to the races and having the same horse. And I was, the story, I rode him twice that day because we could do that. Um, but on the morning of the race, Colin Hayes had a track at uh, West Lakes. It was his own private track, which was 1,600 metres, which was a mile around. Mm. And we he used to let anyone use it. And the morning of the race, my boss said, he said, well, you trot the old horse around. He was a steeplechaser. He was a 3,000-metre horse. Mm. And I was on, a, in, on him in a, uh, a five-furlong race, 1,000 metres. <laughs> and, he, and he said, trot him around the CS's track and just sprint him down a furlong. Because, John, years ago, 
this is what we used to do. The trainers used to sprint their horses up on the morning of the race. Oh, yeah. And it was more or less, it switched the button on to say, I'm in this afternoon. You know, mm. that's, that's what it was, you know, that's the reason I think that they did it. Mm. And the horse knew that he was going to go to the races because he'd sprinted up a furlong. Well, well I trotted him around on my own and, and I sprinted him up a furlong. Now, he weighed a 1,000 pounds. Mm. And after we'd got a complete lap flat out, 1,600 metres, full bore, and he just finally decided that he'd stop. Mm. And I thought, well, <clears throat> I've ruined my first ride in a race. I'm not going to be able to go to the races and ride him because he's just gone a mile. But I walked him home by the beach, and when I got home, I, I, the boss said he was waiting at the gate for him, and he said, how'd he go? I said, oh, he's pretty keen. And he said, uh, did he sprint down a furlong? I said, yes, but I didn't tell him about the other seven furlongs, will it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... He said, well, we'll put him, put him away, he said, and we'll get ready for the races, and then we'll go. So we went to the races, and the first race I rode him in was 1,000 metres, and, and he ran third, and there was only four in it, I think. Mm. And, and when we went past the post, I couldn't pull him up. So we went right down, nearly round again, mm. and him being a 1,000 pound and me being, you know, four stone five. And Anyway, when we came in, I, I got changed, and I thought, wow, my first ride in a race, and, you know, and... and and I've run third, I don't care if I never have another ride in a race, I've run a place. Mm. And I got dressed, and the boss came in, and he said, that old horse pulled up all right. I said, yeah, boss. And he said, look, we can run him again if we want to in the last, because those days there's no TAB. Oh. And he said, we can run him again, do you think he could take another race? <laughs> and, I, and it was a mile and a quarter. Mm. And I, but I wanted to have another ride. And I said, oh, it shouldn't hurt him, boss. I said, he only went a furlong this morning. Uh, I said, and then he only went five furlongs then. Mm. But then I started to add it up, John. You know, like he went a furlong, but then he went a mile as well. Mm. And then he went a 1,000 metres, and then he went another, another, nearly another seven furlongs after that to pull him up. And I said, it shouldn't hurt him, boss. He, I said, he hadn't done much. And he said, well, we'll run him in the last race. So anyway, the last race comes up, and it's a mile and a quarter. And I'm going out on the track, and the clerk of the course come up, and he grabbed him by the bridle, and I said, oh, it's, it's okay. I said, I know him. I said, he's one of ours. I said, he's quiet old horse. He said, uh, and of course, those days, the clerks of the courses were voluntary, and a lot of them were farmers, and that, the local area, they worked around, and, and he, he looked down at me, and he said, son, he said, uh, I've got to milk cows tonight. He said, no, I seen you here earlier today. He said, no, I don't want to be chasing you after the last. And he said, I've got to be home to milk these cows. And I said, oh, fair enough. So we went down the barrier, and the boss said, you know, barrier one I drew, and he said, third on the fence. He said, and then when you get to the half mile, he said, take a break on them because you've got a seven-pound claim. So anyway, we, I drew barrier one. I thought, well, I've done the first part of the job. I'm third on the fence. There was only four in it. And we jumped out, and I was third on the, going to be third on the fence. But when we went out the straight the first time, I was 10 lengths in front. <laughs> I couldn't hold him. Yeah. And I thought, I'm not going to get to the half mile. Mm. He told me to get to the half mile and sneak away on him. I thought, if I just get there, I'll be happy. Yeah. Anyway, we got down there <laughs> at, at about the mile, and then down to the seven, and then down to the six, the five. And we're getting near the half mile, and, and then I hear this voice, get off the rail, son. So I moved out off the rail. And then there was another voice, get back on that rail. So I went back onto the rail. And then this went on for the rest of the race. And I went over the line, and when I went over the line, I looked across, and I'd won by half a length. Mm. And I looked across, and my idol had ran second, Jimmy Johnson. Yeah. And I thought, wow. 
this is the biggest day in my life. I've beaten, beaten my idol, JJ. Mm. Anyway, then I couldn't pull him up. So I went nearly round again and came back into the room. And, of course, they, all the jockeys were there and that weighed most of the other three in. And, and when, I was, when I was getting changed, Jimmy Johnson came over. He said, I want to see you some before you leave. And, you know, my first day in the jockey's room, John, I thought, wow, what do the older jockeys, do they give the young blokes a belt and if they beat them or what? <laughs> and, and I thought it was the last race, you know. And, mm. and I said, uh, Mr. Johnson, I went over and I said, Mr. Johnson, you wanted to see me? He said, um, yeah. He said, you know why you won the last race? I said, well, must have been, a, I reckon I was on the fastest horse. Mm. He said, no. He said, did you hear that guy call out to you down the back straight, mm. tell you to get off the fence? Mm. I said, yes. He said, that was Peter Kelly. And he said, did you hear the other guy call out to get back on it? I said, yes. He said, that was me. <laughs> and I said, well, how did that help me win the race, Mr. Johnson? He said, well, put yourself in our position. Half mile from home, we got a four-stone kid on a 1,000-pound horse. He was off the fence, on the fence, off the fence, on the fence, <laughs> off the fence, on the fence. He said, we didn't know what side of you to go. He said, so I won my first race by default. <laughs> so, but it was great to be JJ and yeah. you know he's 89 now John and, yeah. and he's just such he's been such a mentor to me all mm. my life and, and a wonderful person Jono you've always been a trailblazer yes. you've always been different you've always been innovative now you will be very very surprised to learn that in the six months of these podcasts uh, on yes. my website you are the first interviewee to necessitate uh, the podcast being posted in two parts. <laughs> really? <laughs> two segments. <laughs> we're, now, we're, now, now, what's the second question? That's what they always say to me. <laughs> yeah. So, mate, we, we have just come to the end of segment one with former champion jockey and uh, a great character and a great personality, the one and only Johnny Letts, and uh, we're going to post part two uh, immediately after this. So stay tuned because we haven't even yet talked about Letsy's two Melbourne Cup winners, Piping Lane and Belldale Ball. For over 150 years, Inglis has led the way in the field of thoroughbred auctions. In 2018, Inglis again sold the most yearlings at the highest average. Last season, Inglis was number one for Group 1 wins and the only auction house to sell a Group 1 winning two-year-old. They sold four, in fact. I'm proud to align myself with Inglis, number one in its field. 